Wisconsin's true home team is Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Now featuring savings up to $2,500 off an installed patio door, up to $3,000 off an installed entry door, but only through May 31st. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Hope you had an enjoyable three-day weekend. Hope you also remember, along with the picnics and whatever else you were doing, the real purpose of Memorial Day, which is to take a couple moments and remember the sacrifices of those who gave their all so we can enjoy our freedoms. All right. Let me amplify on a story that Jane was just telling you about. The headline is Northridge Mall Owners, Attorneys Withdraw from Demolition Case. We've been following the story for several years. It is an out-and-out disgrace and an embarrassment that the Northridge property, the former shopping center that was Northridge that so many of us remember when we were growing up, it is an outrage that it has been allowed to deteriorate to the point it is. The the mall is sitting there. It is vacant. It is in disrepair. People are injured. People are breaking and stealing stuff. It is an eyesore of epidemic purposes. The city of Milwaukee, give the city of Milwaukee credit, they started condemnation proceedings against they said look this this place it 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 needs to be torn down we need to do something about it this chinese outfit that that owns it and, and years ago they came up with this plan that they were going to repurpose it as this giant trade market etc that was always pie in the sky i mean the, the day of in giant indoor shopping malls is over it was never going to happen but they they, they said this is what we're going to do and they have these really great plans and they show them to people and people say that's really really cool, but that's all they are. That All they have is the money they invested in drafting the plans that they trot out. So the city's been trying to tear this down. A judge ordered it condemned because to repair the thing, to get that space usable, it would cost a, a, a multiple of what the property is actually worth. And so this, this Chinese outfit is continuing to fight this. They got two judges on the Wisconsin Court of Appeals to guppy on their argument, overrule the trial judge, and send it back for more hearings, all of which does nothing but simply allow that facility to continue to deteriorate even more and just block us from doing what ultimately is going to have to happen here. The place is going to, it's going to be condemned. It's going to be torn down and maybe the city will be able to repurpose it. Maybe some light industrial use. Some of us with our tongues only partially concealed in our cheeks say, Hey, if you're looking for a juvenile detention facility, that's the ideal location for it. But regardless, it's an eyesore. It needs to be torn down. So anyhow, the attorneys that have been working with the, uh, Chinese outfit, the U.S. Black Spruce Enterprise Group, they have now filed a motion to withdraw from the demolition case. All right, here's the way the Business Journal reports it. Attorneys who represented Northridge Mall's owner in its lawsuit challenging a city demolition order withdrew from the case, telling a judge their clients are not meeting obligations under a contract signed in 2019. Okay, want me to interpret what this means? Hmm. I'll give you three guesses, but the first two don't count. Not meeting their obligations, that's, that's, let's cut through it, that's legal speak for it, they're not paying their bills. <laughs> so in other words, they signed this agreement, they agreed to pay the lawyers, and 
They are stiffing the lawyers. That is what I guess this means. Now, the lawyers can't come out and say, hey, we're, we're, we're getting stiffed on this. But my guess is that that's really they're withdrawing. Black Spruce has not and has failed to provide assurances it will in the future substantially fulfill an obligation to Von Briesen and Roper regarding its services. In other words, they're not paying us, and we have no guarantees, no assurance, and no confidence that they will continue to pay us in the future. So that would be, you know, my my guess as to what's going on in this particular case. In any event, um, all this is really going to serve to do, unfortunately, is delay the process even more because now that this, <clears throat> this this black spruce operation is going to say well you know now we, we've lost our attorneys that they've been working for us for years and now we're going to have to find somebody else we're going to have to bring them in we're going to have to get them up to speed all the while that property at northridge continues to deteriorate more and more and more and part of this Candidly, I blame on two judges on the Wisconsin Court of Appeals who should have allowed the demolition to go through instead of sending it back um, and causing all, all this delay. So for everybody in the neighborhood, for everybody in the community who's outraged about this, well, the the Chinese company, lots to blame. But again, you had two judges on the Wisconsin Court of Appeals who made, in my opinion, a very, very bad decision, which is now simply served to delay this. Meanwhile, Northridge deteriorates more and more every day. All right, let us switch gears. Friday afternoon, last day I had a chance to speak with you. We we actually had to blow up part of the program, no pun intended, for about an hour because we were getting reports of a shutdown at Slinger Middle School. If you will remember that, it seems like a long time ago. But there was a, apparently what had happened is a student had announced to other students in the hallway that they had a gun. And at that point in time, well, of course, appropriately, you know, everything just gets put on hold. You have the SWAT team showing up. You have all the emergency people showing up. The school ends up going on lockdown. Parents are appropriately freaked out, especially after what happened in Texas a couple days um, before this. And so you have this huge response, and it turns out that it was some kid that was just joking uh, about this. Um, Fond du Lac High School today is shut down because over the weekend, some idiot kid put out a, a threat on Snapchat. So that school is closed down. And in Berlin, which is in Green Lake County, um, a, a juvenile has been arrested there in connection with a, a threat directed, I believe, at the high school out there. So you, you have all this stuff going on. Here is the one common thread with these different threats, and that is unless authorities decide to charge the students responsible for this as adults, wave them into adult court and charge them as adults, you will in all likelihood never know their identity. You won't know, or at least the public won't know, who it was, for example, that caused all the problems at Slinger Middle School. Now, I understand that through back channels and stuff, some parents will be able to figure that out. But in general, we will not know. It will not be a public matter as to what kid 
you know, declared that they had a gun that caused all, all this problem because we have made this decision that, well, you know, even though they're making terrorist threats and causing all this consternation and unsettling people, well, they're just juveniles and we don't want to, you know, call attention to them. We don't want them to be publicly shamed because, well, this could follow them through the rest of their life. Now, you might understand and you might argue, well, yeah, they're, they're, they're saying they've got a gun in the school. Maybe people should know who that is. Now, in Florida, they handle this differently, and that's the story I want to lead off with. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I've got a um, got a posting of this. Um, la- at the end of last week, um, this is in, in Cape Coral, Florida, which is just outside of Fort Myers. It's, it's a very, very nice community. Apparently, there was a 10-year-old kid who goes to an elementary school. And he took to the Internet to send out a series of threatening texts. He sent one text that showed him um, with wads of cash, another text that showed um, AR-15 rifles. He said to a friend that he was uh, they should get ready for him to carry out a, a mass shooting. So he seri- sends out a, a series of threats indicating that, that he is prepared to go to the school and shoot it up. All right. Well, somebody directs attention to the, you know, the police. The police look at all this. They determine that these are these are viable threats and they get an arrest warrant. Probable cause. They go out. They arrest the kid. What is different about this case from, say, the three that I talked about that happened last week or over the weekend in Wisconsin is the sheriff in Lee County, Florida, decides, you know what? I am going to make an example of this kid. So they go out, they arrest him. And again, I've got a link to this story and link to the pictures. They perp walk the kid. By perp walk, I mean they go out, they arrest him, they handcuff him, and then in the view of newspaper reporters and TV journalists, they walk the kid out. And so you can see who the kid is. They subsequently make the kid's mugshot and his name public. So... Everybody knows who this, and it's a 10-year-old, everybody knows who the 10-year-old is. The sheriff, who's getting some criticism for publicly outing the 10-year-old, he's he, he, he's not apologetic at all. He says, we have a zero tolerance about this. He said, you know, we, we've made it clear. You know, we've done a campaign, fake threat, real consequence. He says, I understand the boy is 10 years old. His brain's not fully developed. He's a juvenile. But I have to tell you, when a 10-year-old presses a trigger, the aftermath is the same, regardless of the age. He says, you don't come into one, you don't get to come into one of my schools in my county and present deadly force. Um, and he says, look, I'm, he says, I, I, what I want to do, I want to beg parents to sit with their children. We need to do everything we can to prevent this. But he says, yes, I am going to publicly identify him. And he has. Now, this is causing some problems for some of the news organizations down in Florida who, it, it depends what the news organization is. Some are very, very squeamish and very uncomfortable about publicly identifying the kid, even though the sheriff's department has. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's tee this up. All right, the kid makes the threats. He is arrested and charged for making terrorist threats. He has been publicly identified. His mugshot is out there. His name is out there. Are you troubled by the fact that the kid's name has been made 
public, 855-616-1620. One of my starting comments would be, well, you know, maybe some advice to parents. If you don't want your kid shamed in public, maybe you shouldn't let him to threaten to shoot up his school. 855-616-1620. Are you appalled that they have publicly identified the 10-year-old? We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. If you haven't figured this out, I, I, by the way, am not appalled by this at all. If you're just tuning in, 10-year-old in Florida over the weekend makes a series of terrorist threats. He's got guns. He's got money. He's going to come in. He's going to shoot up the school. The sheriff's department gets an arrest warrant, finds probable cause. He's committed the crime. They arrest him. And they perp walk him. So in, in front of the media, there, there's pictures of this kid being walked out. The sheriff's department subsequently puts out a um, put, publicizes his name and his mugshot. And the sheriff, who's getting some criticism, he says, "Look, you, I, you know, this is a big deal, and you know we're we're going to expose people who who do this." And I guess my advice is, you know, if parents, if you don't want your ten year old called out for doing this, maybe you need to you know pay more attention to what he's doing on the internet. I actually think that this is something that we need to take a real hard look and change a lot of juvenile laws. I think it is appalling in the state of Wisconsin, for example, that you can as a juvenile, steal car after car after car, and unless and until you're waived into adult court, which almost never happens, your name is going to be kept out of the public. I think, you know, when you get somebody that steals, well, I would say one car, but certainly three or four or five, and is doing this over and over again, I think, number one, you should be identified as a car thief, and number two, if nothing else, I think the, the general public particularly your neighbors, should have a right to know that, hey, that kid down the block is out there stealing cars. And maybe, just maybe, if the parents don't like the fact that they're associated with it, maybe it'll inspire the parents to do a little bit more to keep their kids under control. But when it comes to terrorist threats, any right to privacy, as far as I'm concerned, is out the window. Jared in Milwaukee. Jared, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me on the show. Yes, sir. Um, so no, I, I completely agree with you. I think there should be, um, you know, a little bit more accountability placed on the parents for not monitoring their kids online presence. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, 10 years old, you shouldn't be able to, um, be posting these things by yourself or like unmonitored. Um, but also I, I agree that they should be charged as adults and, um, publicly outed for like such serious threats like this, because, you know, in this instance, it was very credible. There was a lot of evidence yep. showing that there was a serious threat. So, you know, yeah. that's something that they're going to have to carry for the rest of their lives. All right. Thank, thanks for calling. I guess, and I, I mean, I would just think, look, there, there's something wrong with, with a, a even at the age of 10. And I understand their, their brains aren't as developed. I get all that. The sheriff down there gets all that. But there's something wrong with somebody, especially a couple days after. And keep in mind, this came in the immediate aftermath of that shooting at the school in um, da- down in Texas. There, there is something wrong with somebody who does this. So, yes, I think the public has a right to know about that. I think the neighbors in Cor- Cape Coral, I think the other parents at the school have a right to know about that. Now, I don't know if the kid was going to actually act out this time or other times but what's the point of protecting his 
identity. You know, um, interestingly, a day after this kid was arrested, there was an 18-year-old in Florida. His name was Corey Anderson. He was busted at his home after making an online threat while posting photos of himself with what appeared to be a rifle, a handgun, and a tactical-style vest. Let me just give some advice to people that are out there. This is not a laughing matter, and it doesn't matter whether you're 10 or 18 or 25 or whatever. You go out and you threaten to shoot up schools. There's pretty much a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to that. So parents out there, you know, maybe you need to monitor what your kids are doing on the Internet. I mean, a 10-year-old, what kind of 10-year-old goes in and makes these sort of threats? But I have no sympathy now that the kid has been outed. And, again, it's interesting because a lot of news sources are, are wrestling with, well, just because the sheriff has made it public, do we make it public? Um, you know, but the bottom line is now everybody in that community knows what this 10 year old did. And for people who are outraged that he's been outed, I would be more outraged that he made the threat in the first place. And just one final thought to put this all in perspective, let's localize it. Everybody remember, you know, how upset people were at what happened at Slinger Middle School on Friday because the kid declared that they they had a gun and you had the SWAT teams and you had all the parents that were thrown into panic and you had school closed down and you had uh, obviously probably tens of thousands of dollars of taxpayer money, which was appropriately spent to search the school and all this reaction. And we will in all likelihood, the, the punk that did that will never be publicly identified. Now, like I said, my guess is some parents know them, but they will not be called out for what they did. And I don't see any reason at all why the general public doesn't have a right to know that this is the kid that did that, especially since if you're willing to do what this kid did, you know, this time, who who knows what you might do next time. But to protect the identity of these sweet little darlings makes no sense to me at all. It's a different time. It's a different age. We aren't living in Mayberry anymore. Good afternoon. Welcome back. All right, some more details emerging about something we talked about uh, the, the other day. And it's it's one of these stories where, in a matter of moments, you can make choices which are, in fact, life-altering. You will remember the story we talked about. It was a hit-and-run case. And... The, the young man was a junior at Greenfield High School. He was the captain of the soccer team, and he was injured in, in a crash on, on May 21st, West Loomis Road, uh, near West Edgerton Avenue. And it was a hit and run and got, got appropriately got a lot of attention. Well, more details are starting to emerge. As a matter of fact, on Friday, authorities charged the 34-year-old man who's responsible for the hit and run. And it's one of these stories where, you, you know, you don't know exactly what's going on, but if if the driver of the car, if his story is correct, he's just... He's not only a criminal, but he's one of the stupidest criminals that are uh, ever around. So apparently what was happening is that the, the young man who was hit by the car, it, it's dark, right? He and a group of teens are in the area having a water gun fight. And apparently the, the kid who was hit by the car was being chased by someone with a water gun. And what he did was the 16-year-old, as 16-year-olds do, run in runs into the roadway 
after being chased. Now, in the law, they call this dart out, D-A-R-T, dart out. And and you hear these stories from time to time. You know, kids, particularly a lot of times it's younger kids, but people will run out from between cars. Just because you are driving and somebody runs between cars and runs out into the street and you hit them, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are at fault. A lot of times, hey, you know, you're driving down the street, you're going the speed limit or whatever. Somebody runs out from between cars and and you hit them. It's not your fault. There's nothing that you can do. But you're supposed to, of course, stop and, and render assistance. So what happens is this 16-year-old runs into traffic and gets hit by the car. Well, instead of stopping the vehicle, the driver takes off. Now, again, stupid criminal stories. Apparently, the, the impact is so great that a license plate from the vehicle falls off at the scene okay, this is going to be really hard for the police to figure this out. Your license plate has fallen off, as well as pieces. It was a Jeep SUV. The J and the P, consistent with the Jeep vehicle, fall out. All right, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure this out. Okay, we're now looking for a a, a Jeep that's damaged, and it's missing the J and the P. And, by the way, we've got the license plates. So the... You know, they're able to trace the car to, you know, where it it comes from. Well, the driver of the car, instead of stopping or instead of going to the police to to, to report it immediately, apparently what he does is he um, goes to then Potawatomi. Um, dumps the car at Potawatomi with a lot of other cars. So he stashes it at the Potawatomi parking lot, calls an Uber to pick him up. When he gets to his house or where he's staying, he sees that the police are there because, again, his license plate came off. Um, he then has the Uber driver drop him off around the corner. He spends the night at a park, goes back to his house about an hour before the police arrive uh, again. And so now the guy is looking at 15 years in prison and looking at a fine of up to $50,000. Now, his story is that he'd been at a volleyball tournament all day and he'd only had two drinks. The reason why most people who are involved in hit and runs, who otherwise might not be responsible for it, again, a a dart out, the reason most of them drive off, and again, once again, I'll give you three guesses and the first two don't count. What would be the reason if, if somebody darts out in front of you and, you know, you, you hit them, you know you've hit somebody and, and you drive off. You know, what, what's, what's the reason most people, and I don't know what this guy's story was, um, he, he says he only had two drinks. The reason most people would do something like this is they've had more than two drinks and they're worried that they're drunk. And even, even if... It's a situation where the kid darted out, for example. If you're driving and you're intoxicated, you're going to be in, in a lot of trouble. Now, I don't know what the facts are, but, but the fact that the guy didn't stop, drove off, and then wasn't arrested till the next morning, um, he, he's, in, he's just in a lot of trouble. There, there's no doubt about it. And, and nobody feels good about this. But the bottom line is um, free legal advice from a recovering lawyer. If you're ever involved in a situation like this, you stop. You know, you stop it at the scene because police solve these. The, these these type of cases, 
There's unfortunately a lot of them out there, but a lot of the hit and runs, as as cases go, the, these get solved a lot. And especially if if you've left your license plate at the scene of the crime, it's not going to be too hard to clear the particular case. Don't know why the guy ran, but it was a huge mistake in doing that. Even though the underlying act, it, it might not have been his fault because of this cautionary tale to parents out there. Look, kids are kids. But this is another one of these teachable moments where you say, look, this is the type of stuff that can happen. We understand you're playing, but when, you know, you, you run out into traffic, especially after dark or even, you know, during the daylight, bad things can happen. When we come back, Joe Biden threatens to go Canada. I'll explain. We'll discuss. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Speaking to reporters on the White House lawn yesterday, Joe Biden went farther than I think Many people in Congress would go when he started talking about how he believes, and I'm paraphrasing just slightly, that nine millimeter weapons, weapons that shoot nine millimeter bullets, need to be outlawed. He was railing against ownership of what he called high caliber weapons, and he was talking about how, you know, he visited a a trauma center in New York, and doctors had showed him x-rays of gunshot wounds caused by various firearms. They said a 9mm bullet will blow the lung out of the body. So the idea of these high-caliber weapons is there's simply no rational basis for thinking in terms of self-protection or or hunting. Now, let's, let's back up here. Right now, the conversation has been the, these quote-unquote semi-automatic assault rifles, you know, the scary things that tend to be the, the weapon of choice in many, but not all, of the major shootings. That's not what Biden is talking about. Biden is now talking about, okay, firearms that are able to, to shoot 9 millimeter bullets. All right, so it's not just rifles. It's, it's handguns. Now, let me just kind of back up here. In America right now, 81, 82 million Americans or so own at least one firearm. Uh, 40% of American households have at least, you know, someone in that household that owns a a firearm. There's over 400 million plus firearms in the United States. When it comes to handguns, 9mm pistols which are again there's there's different types of of pistols there's the there's the old revolvers where you load them manually and they got the six shots in them or whatever um those those are not the most popular the vast majority well let's see um about the estimates i have are about like 60% of the handguns that were manufactured in the united states over the last like 10 years are all of the 9 millimeter variety it is the common handgun of choice for, I I think, most firearms enthusiasts. It's the type of weapon that I think most people use for self-protection. Just last year alone, there were about 4 million 9mm pistols um, manufactured in in the United States. And Joe Biden is talking about, well, I don't think people need these 9mm weapons. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, this is kind of interesting because, as I said before, um, I, I, have a, I have a handgun. I had a handgun for 20 years, and I have, just like many firearms people, I, I have a 9 millimeter pistol. That's what I, I have. That's what I learned to shoot on. That's what I use. It is in a gun safe in, in my home, and 
I guarantee you, I have never thought about taking that firearm out and, and using it to hold up a 7-Eleven or anything of the like. Um, there are tens of millions of these firearms in possession of, of Americans, tens of millions. And again, these are these are handguns. These are not the AR-15 style uh Assault, semi-automatic assault rifles that, that you get a lot of conversation with. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I do not know if the president misspoke. I do not know if the president, well, I, I don't know, just had sort of one of those brain freezes that he apparently has nowadays on a, on a regular sort of basis when he says things like he's prepared to committing to, to go to war if China does something with Taiwan or, you know, that Vladimir Putin has to be removed from power, all, all those sort of things that they then walk back. But I, I think, and as I've said, as I've said repeatedly over the years, I think you can have and should have legitimate conversations about, you know, are there reasonable gun control measures that people should consider? Things like, you know, do you really need high capacity magazines? Is it unreasonable to say that the age to purchase legally uh, a semi-automatic rifle should be 21 instead of 18. I I think those are, I'm open to some of the things about even universal background checks that I know some people disagree with is very controversial. But if the president is actually talking about taking what is arguably the most popular type of firearm in in this country today, a firearm that is in the possession of tens of millions of people and saying he wants to outlaw that, to me, it's a complete and total non-starter. 855-616-1620. And as a matter of fact, it is a distraction be- from a-, a conversation about, okay, you know, what what. What are reasonable sort of gun control measures as opposed to saying we're going to take the most popular handgun that is in the possession of tens of millions of people and we're going to tell you that you can't have it anymore? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. Now, I don't know if Joe Biden was serious or whether this was just him kind of rambling. But yesterday he's talking to people on the White House lawn, reporters, and he, he starts denouncing, you know, nine millimeter, which is nine millimeter. That's the most popular pistol that is manufactured in this country today. There are tens of millions of them um, in, in possession. And I, my, the, the estimates I'm seeing are about 60 percent of handgun owners in this country own nine millimeters. I'm, I'm in that, capa- that that category. And Joe Biden is saying, we, we, there's no reason for people to have to have these firearms. This, to me, if this is seriously the fight that he wants to take, he pretty much guarantees that you're going to get no gun control um, provisions through at all because this, if you're going to ban 9mm handguns, you're essentially talking about you're, you're talking about banning a good portion of the guns that are in the possession of people, the vast majority, 99.999%, who never use them to commit crimes. Jim in Minocqua. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Yeah, I just wanted to let's say that uh, the 9 millimeter to me, is a, a rather mediocre round, not really that high power, not that low power. It is the most popular. However, if it was me and I wanted to go and do some serious damage, I'm going to use a much higher caliber, like a 45, where I can shoot through windows and doors and what have you? Yeah, you're going to go out and get one of That's the dirty. Ca- you're going to go get one of like the 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 dirty Harry type of handguns. You know, the most powerful gun in in the world. Remember the old Dirty Harry movie. That's that's what you're going to do if you really want to cause carnage. Exactly, I agree with you a hundred percent. 
Yeah. So what we've got is the president who is perhaps, I don't know, when he's talking about like the, the nine millimeter bullets, he's he's sort of off in a way, right? Oh, yes, he's off. Uh, but I, don't, I think he is serious about this uh, trying to eliminate the nine millimeter just for the simple fact that it is the most popular. And I believe they wanted disarming American citizens. Well, I mean, thanks for calling. I mean, again, that's I, th- that's what struck me about the statement. Again, again I don't, I, w- with Joe Biden, you don't know. He, he just has this tendency, of course, to kind of go off script and, and say things, the first thing that comes into his mind, and then, you know, the aides all sort of walk that, that back afterwards. No, he, he really didn't mean that, you know, we have to take out Vladimir Putin, or no, he didn't really mean that we were going to put boots on the ground to fight China if they invade Taiwan. He didn't really mean any of that. And you know, statement after statement like that. And I, I'm wondering if this is in that same sort of category, because when he goes on. And by the way, I understand that you can have a legitimate debate in this country. As a matter of fact, we're going to do it in the next segment of the program about, all right, do, do average do average citizens need to own the semi-automatic, you know, the AR-15 type of assault rifles, which while there's over 20 million of them in private hands and Almost none of them are ever used, you know, in mass shootings or things like that. But but when you have the mass shootings, that tends to be the gun of, of choice. So you can have a legitimate conversation, I think, about, you know, okay, should we look at trying to restrict this type of firearm? But that that's not what the president is talking about. He's now talking about, all right, what is the most popular handgun that is in the possession of tens of millions of people? And my question is, first of all, is he even right on the facts about, oh, this is the type of gun that does all this devastation but secondly is this the fight that you really intend to to pick because this if you're going to ban this type of gun you might as well come out and say okay we're going to try to ban guns period that's it jeff one of the reasons the nine millimeter is so popular is it because it is a somewhat mild uh, caliber compared to others and ease of control and use that's actually the opposite of biden's statement um Somebody says, are you saying that the 9mm gun can't kill anybody? Well, of course not. 9mm can, can, in fact, kill people if it's used you know, improperly or if it's used properly and you're in the case of self-defense. I'm just saying that it's not like it's a cannon. It's not like it is a bazooka. And there are a lot of handguns that have higher capacity. And I, I think this was just a it was just a dumb thing for the president to say. If, again, if he wants to come out and he wants to say, okay, the goal of my administration is we are going to ban firearms. I've reached the decision that we need to repeal the Second Amendment, and there's no Second Amendment guarantee that you should be able to have what is the most popular handgun in the you know United States, and we're going to try to you know launch legislation to take it back. Well, that's fine. Say it. Make the argument for it as opposed to just, I don't know, throwing this out there. Well, I visited a hospital and I saw, you know, somebody that had been shot in the lung with the nine millimeter. I don't think we should have them without understanding the ramifications of what it is that he's saying. All right. When we come back, should we go Canada in the United States? I will explain. We will discuss. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. All right. Was Joe Biden going Canada when he said that, I think we, we need to, well, nobody needs to have 9 millimeter you know, firearms, which would, of course, 
be declaring war on the most popular handgun in the United States. And does, I, I, I don't think he really meant it. I think my sense is it's one of these things where, as often happens with Joe Biden, he just kind of starts talking and whatever pops into his mind, he, he ends up saying, and then the aides walk it back. But this is something that the prime minister of Canada means. Um, Canada has a different view of firearms than the United States does. I mean, Canada with its with its history tied to you know Great Britain and th- there's there's a different gun culture in Great Britain. As a general rule, individuals there's no Second Amendment, there's no guarantee of the right to bear arms, and there's all sorts of limitations. So Canada has just announced. Now, part of this is is political. And it will, I I think, probably get support and might pass in Canada. But to me, politics is always the art of the possible. And I want to tee this up and say, is this something that is practical? And is this something that's necessary in the United States? The prime minister of Canada, just re-elected Justin Trudeau in a close election, has come out. He said, well... We understand that the vast majority of gun owners in this country, that would be Canada, are responsible and follow all necessary laws. However, having said that, in the wake of some of the mass shootings that are going on, we think what we need to do is impose even more gun control measures on the citizens of Canada. He said, so first of all, what we are going to do is, number one, implement a national freeze on buying, importing, transferring and selling all handguns, which would uh, effectively cap the number of handguns in, in the country. So they, they would not require you to turn in your gun, but you, you couldn't buy any additional guns. You couldn't sell your handgun. You couldn't transfer your handgun. You couldn't give it to your kid. You couldn't give it to your spouse. So essentially it would like freeze everything status quo no new handguns at, at all. And as a second part of this, for any um, assault-style weapons, and again, these these are like the AR-15 type of firearms and things like that, they would implement a mandatory, essentially confiscation. They, they call it a, a mandatory gun buyback program, but that's that's... It will be illegal to possess these guns. We will buy them back from you, but we're going to do that. Now, to give you a perspective on this, in the United States, there are at least 20 million of these AR-15-style firearms that are in private possession, probably more than that, but at least 20 million. So my question is, in the wake of what happened you know, last week, should should we go Canada? Should we say no more transfer? We're going to essentially try to freeze the number of handguns where it is. No more manufacture, no more sale, no more transfer. And we are going to essentially confiscate any of the AR-15s. We're, and again, they don't say confiscation, but that's what it is. It's, you know, it's a mandatory gun buyback. If you own an AR-15 firearm, you must turn it in. You will be paid for it. Um, they did it in Australia in 1996, and they, they got like 800,000 of them, and, and now the possession of these type of firearms are illegal in Australia. Australia, of course, is not the United States, and in the United States, there's 20 million. 855-616-1620. We are all 
appalled at what happened with the mass shootings, and I am appalled with the level of, of violence that goes on in the communities, is the answer to go Canada. That is to essentially confiscate all AR-15 style firearms and to freeze the purchase, sale, distribution of handguns. And yes, to do that, I think you would probably need to repeal the Second Amendment. 855-616-1620. Should we do this? What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. So in Canada, late last week, they rolled out. This is the, the proposal, which I think may very well pass. They will essentially, um, they will ban AR-15 style weapons, which is essentially, um, it's many, many types of rifles. And they will, they're going to require you to turn in, if you own one, they're going to require, require you to turn it in. You will be paid for it. And if not, you don't turn it in, you are going to be subject to penalties. You become a, a criminal. In the United States, there are 20 million of these firearms. So, uh, first of all, good luck trying to do that. Also in Canada, they are then going to freeze handgun sales. You are not able to purchase new handguns. You will not be able to sell your handgun. You will not be able to transfer your handgun. So the idea is they're not going to confiscate them yet, but you won't be able to do anything with the handgun. You won't be able to transfer ownership or buy new ones. I I think both of these ideas are non-starters in the U.S. And actually, I I think they're they're so out there that what they do is they get us away from what what we might be able to accomplish with gun control, which is, okay, let's try to keep firearms out of the hands of people who who shouldn't have them let's let's look at issues like okay should you be 21 instead of 18 let's look at issues about background checks let's look at issues like high capacity magazines but if you start talking about banning or confiscating or you know saying to 20 million americans who own these type of firearms you're going to be required to turn them in and if you don't we're coming for you Huh. Good luck with that. 855-616-1620. Let's start with John on the north side. John, good afternoon. John. Okay, let's try Lamar in Orlando. Lamar, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. So so I think that in terms of, like, quote-unquote control, uh, I think that we're about 40 years behind the ball in terms of trying to stem like the just the ridiculous access and you know mass production and person of guns so that's a non-start and americans we love our guns far too much we'll, we'll never you can't say confiscation you'll uh, you'll get a you'll get my some type of revolution in my opinion but right. um i think that we're way past that i think that we're moving forward we're in control mode and i think that and it's sad that gun owners don't want to move forward on these things because they, they're afraid of slippery slopes. But I think that in order to deal with our problem, because yes, the reality is if most gun owners were as dangerous, we'd have, you know, we'd have a bigger problem on our hands. But the problem we have is big enough. So I think the problem is that you can't move forward with anything without major pushback. Like, yeah. you agree that, like, background checks are reasonable. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think limiting high-capacity magazines. I mean, I've made that. Why, why do you need a magazine that has 30 rounds in it? Seriously. I mean, I, you know, why, why, why do you need that? And the answer is nobody needs that type of magazine. Right. Why, why do we need the high-capacity rifles? Like, you don't hunt with those things. You know, you don't hunt with them. They're not, I mean, other than, like, just a sport use, mm-hmm. there's no real reason to them and if you want them i think that there should be a higher bar to clear to get them than just being an american 
and being old enough to purchase it. That's a very low bar for a very dangerous weapon. But again, anything that's quote unquote common sense, the people scream slope, slippery slope. We can't do anything about it. Unfortunately, I think we're way past the point of, of you know, doing anything about it. Unfortunately, again, and it's sad. I think that we are just our problems are here to stay. Yeah, well, I don't think I, I, do anything about it. No, but thanks, Colm. I mean, I see. I, I don't. I, I think that. I think that what we need to do, first of all, is I think you need to be open to what I would say would be reasonable gun control regulation. But we do have a Second Amendment, and the, the politics of this, whenever I talk about this, I, I, I get some emails or texts from some of the sort of self-righteous virtue signalers who say that, well, if you don't think we should ban guns and confiscate all these things, you don't care the kids die. Well, the, the, that's it's like, okay, really? Um, we just have different approaches as to what is reasonable and what is realistic. I mean, I think it's interesting that many people who would say that don't support me when I say you should automatically lock up felons who are in possession of firearms. Let's, let's, let's do that. Let's focus kind of on the, the crime control first and, and deal with this stuff. But there's a lot of people that don't want to end up doing that. 855-616-1620. Bottom line is, I, I think part of it is also, and I appreciate what Lamar was saying about, about slavery. Slippery slope, but the truth of the matter is, there are people who want to ban guns, and and that's 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 out there. So I think a lot of the pro gun people are saying, look, this is what really the agenda is. So that's one of the reasons why we can't have a reasonable dialogue on this, because there's some people that's exactly what they want to do. They want to ban guns, and my point to that is, explain to me how you are going to do that. What are the numbers here? Um, Eighty-one point four million Americans own guns. I mean, seriously, 40% of households have guns. 400-plus million firearms owned in the United States. Explain to me, as a practical matter, how you are going to get those guns out of circulation. And the answer is you're, you're not. And to the extent that you are able to ban guns, for example, you think the criminals are going to give them up? A- absolutely not. Even in the most ideal sort of world, you know, even if you could get every law-abiding citizen who isn't going to go out and hold up a 7-Eleven with a firearm, which is 99.99999% of them, you know, the, the people that are causing the problems, they're not going to give up the guns in the first place because in many cases they're the felons who aren't supposed to have them and they're still carrying them. 855-616-1620. I guess I get frustrated by this, by the conversation and some of the absolutists that are out there. Yes, we, we should be open to reasonable measures to make sure that the people who aren't legally allowed to have guns don't have guns. And, and I think I would say to, you know, Second Amendment advocates, you, you need to be open to that. And I would say to the gun banners out there, it's not practical. It's not going to happen. And all you're doing is spinning your wheels and making it more difficult to get other things in place that might be possible because when you talk about banning firearms, for example, um, or mandatory confiscations, what you do is you make a lot of people who might otherwise be open to reasonable restrictions, they get their backs up and say, hey, they're coming for my guns. 855-616-1620. Frank, Frank, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, how are you doing today? Good. What do you think? I think you can't ban weapons, uh, guns specifically, uh, irregardless of what people want to do. Um, look in France. In France, they have those mass stabbings. What are you going to do? Take away knives, too? And you have people driving their cars through crowds. Well, that's are you going to take cars away, too? 
Yeah, that I mean that's it. Yeah, we we had the guy at the Waukesha Christmas Parade who used his car to you know right. kill six people and injure a bunch of others. Yeah, do, do we do we ban cars? No, that's no. Thanks for calling. I mean that's that's the issue that that is is put up there. And I, I mean for me, I think you need to concentrate on whatever we can do to make it more difficult for people who should not have guns to get the guns. For people who shouldn't have guns, who then have them, I think we need to make the penalties a lot tougher. And on the flip side, I think we need to concentrate a lot more on, on doing what we can to protect ourselves, which is, okay, you know, maybe maybe the teacher shouldn't leave the door to the school open while he or she runs out to get their cell phone from a car. Let's talk to Lisa in Mequon. Lisa, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How are you today? Good. What do you think? Well... I'm pretty harsh here, but um, my feeling is very strong about not one person, besides military, worldwide, not one person on the earth needs an assault rifle of any kind. There, there, there is just there is no need for assault rifles for citizens anywhere on the earth. And well, that is my very strong opinion. When you say assault rifle, what are you talking about? Would you take would you take deer rifles out of out of people's hands? Deer hunting? No. I'm sorry. I'm, specifically, I'm sorry. Specifically, assault rifles, high capacity machine guns. Okay. Well. All right. Well, right now, machine guns are are not permitted i mean machine guns are are illegal as a general rule so these firearms like that the that the guy used last week in um last week in texas was one of these like ar-15 style rifles that that you know was capable of shooting as many times as you can pull the trigger i mean that's but it wasn't a machine gun okay so ak-47s ar-15s you know I think they're as a, as an umbrella called an assault rifle. I I, I maybe I'm not no no a- actually I mean AR-15 yeah. actually stands it's it's a brand it's Arma light rifle but but people call it like an assault rifle. So you're you're talking about all those type of firearms that have the the the, the magazines and things like that and you don't think anybody should have them. I do uh, except the military. That okay. is that is my strong. I, I just don't, they I, They were, you know, when this country was created with the right to bear arms and things like that and the Second Amendment, I don't think that this is what they had in mind, that Joe Citizen would have, you know, high-capacity guns that can, the only thing is to kill a lot of people as quickly as possible. Well, Lisa, I, I guess, thanks for calling. I mean, I would, and this is why, I, I think, here's the problem. When you start trying to identify a particular type of firearm, I'm getting swamped with text from this, and I, I think that there's a lot of people who don't necessarily understand firearms. I mean, if you've, if you've got a standard deer rifle, for example, that's got the same ability to hit and kill somebody as the AR-15 style rifle has, it's just it's a different style. Um, so do we ban the, the deer rifles? And what, what about shotguns and things like that? Now, to me, 
one of the things that I think a lot of us could agree on, and at least I agree, is I don't understand why people need the large capacity magazines, which is what you know you're you're talking about the ability to, you know, it will fire as quickly as you can pull triggers. Now, even if you ban the thirty caliber, the, the thirty round magazine or something, doesn't mean that people can't have multiple magazines and and reload. But it is a little bit different. But I guess. I think as a starting point, given the fact that, again, there are 20 million of this this brand, this style firearm out there, you're not, as a realistic world, you're not getting those out of, you're not going to be able to get those out of society. And and if we were, this was 50 years ago or 100 years ago, you know, and you were, again, you know, starting from scratch, maybe you would have a different conversation. But the genie is out of the bottle there. So to me, what we have to do is focus on what is possible, what is reasonable, and how do you, uh, again, moderate that. And, I mean, I, I agree with you to the extent that I don't think people should have 30-round um, magazines. I don't think there's any legitimate reason for people outside of law enforcement or the military to have that. I would start with things like that and see where we go. So very glad to have you with us. I want to call your attention to my Twitter account. If you follow me, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. Uh, Multiple new postings I, I put up there including I want to do a shout out uh, one of the things that we were we were making reference to cars killing people and stuff and, and ever since the Waukesha Christmas parade massacre involving a guy named Daryl Brooks and remember he was out on this really stupid low bail the the point I have been trying to make is that this was not a one-off I understand that the very progressively minded district attorney in Milwaukee County, John Chisholm, said, okay, well, this, you know, that this was a, a mistake. But the problem was it really, it, it's not a mistake. It, it's what goes on or what has gone on in years, for years in Milwaukee County, where the DA's office, and this comes from the top, bends over backwards to try to stop from holding people accountable. And, and this, this is now starting to come out. And my point months ago was, that the the bail in Daryl Brooks case was not uncommon. I, I mean, yeah, it, it might have been a mistake if they had known, you know, all the, the different ramifications, and it might have been a little bit higher. But you have dangerous people that are released on a regular basis that are out there creating havoc. You have people with lengthy criminal records who should be locked up, but they're turned loose on signature bonds or they're turned loose on stupid low bonds and they are committing crimes. And because it doesn't involve killing six people and and injuring dozens and dozens and dozens at a Christmas parade, it never gets any attention. And part of my challenge, both to myself and doing this program, but to other media outlets to report on stuff is, Look at the records that that are involved. Let let's start to focus on this because I think you're going to start to see this pattern of again, I hate to use the cliche, the chickens coming home to roost, but it's the chickens coming home to roost. It's people who should have been locked up, who should have been detained, who are out committing crimes. And and I do want to send out a shout out because there's at least one TV station in town, Fox Six, which has 
sort of taken up that that challenge, and they're 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 doing this, and they're calling attention in a series of stories to people who are out on stupid low bails who should not have been out, who have committed crimes. And I've got a, a link to to one of these stories again. If you follow me, it's um, at Jeff Wagner six twenty, and the, it, it's like another day, another failure of pretrial release, and it's a story of a convicted felon who a convicted felon who was free on a signature bond, in other words, didn't even have to post the dime, just had to promise to pay, and who was wearing a GPS tracker who's now been charged with attempted murder. And, you know, I, I just, again, we, we all want to talk about the firearms and gun control measures. You know, can't we also talk about bail reform and, and crime control? Here's the story as they reported on Fox 6. Two Milwaukee men are charged with attempted first-degree intentional homicide after a shooting on the city's north side Sunday, April 24th. The charge had just come out. The accused are 22-year-old Marvin Johnson and 27-year-old Kendall Love. Johnson is also charged with a possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. Police were called to the shooting scene. They found the victim, 33-year-old man, multiple gunshot wounds to his lower body. Five days after the shooting, police spoke to the victim. The victim said Johnson, that's the 22-year-old, had previously threatened him. He said he remembered being at a corner store when he saw Johnson in love, but did not remember much of the shooting. Surveillance video showed Love and Johnson Park go into the corner store prior to the shooting. Shortly thereafter, the victim parked, went up to the two men outside. Love and Johnson were seen coming out of the store. They looked like they were having a friendly interaction. Love and Johnson then got into their car, drove around the corner. Surveillance from a nearby alley. Johnson, this is the 22-year-old, was seen returning with a gun visible in his hand. Love joined him shortly, and then... Um, they ended up uh, shooting the the victim. All right, the victim ran into the intersection. Um, The other guy he was with ran off. Johnson kept shooting at the victim and was eventually hit and fell in the road. The shooting continued as Johnson approached, getting within 10 feet of the victim before running back to the alley. They found 10 bullet casings. All right, now this is, Johnson is 22 years old. He is a felon. The complaint states that Johnson was fitted with a GPS tracking device by the Wisconsin Department of Corrections at the time of the shooting. All right, so he's on a tracking device. Boy, that really helped, huh? Um, he was on, both Johnson and Love have prior felony convictions, and Johnson, again, was, was out on, on, was on a signature bond. I mean, you've got some guy who's a multiple felon. He's charged. You turn him loose on a signature bond, but you put that GPS tracking thing on his ankle, and what ends up happening? Well, boy, that really stopped him from getting involved in a mass shooting. It's just, but this is the type of stuff that happens on a daily basis. And the one good thing is I think some of the courts are are starting to realize that they've been played like fools by, for example, a lot of the recommendations of the DA's office and things like that. So now they're starting to tighten up things. And instead of what previously would have been a $1,500 bond, you're starting to see you know $100,000 bonds. And maybe, just maybe, that will keep dangerous people locked up. But th- this, is, this is the story that's out there. You know, we want to talk about gun control and things like that. And that's all well and good. But as long as we are turning dangerous people loose on the streets on a daily basis... And that, unfortunately, happens all too often. Then they go out and commit crimes. You're never going to get it handled on crime control. And if you want to read this story, 
Um, you can follow me again. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. But, you know, kudos. Fox 6 has been highlighting a lot of these cases because th- this is the message that's out there. Dangerous people being turned loose. Okay, when we come back, why is it controversial to say that boys and girls are different? Stick around. Over the weekend, I was reading a huge story in the New York Times dealing with the whole issue of transgender athletes. And as a follow-up to that, I, I saw this this interview that was done with, with Leah Thomas, who is the, the sort of the poster child for this issue. Uh, Leah Thomas is the, the swimmer for the University of, of Pennsylvania, who for the first 20 years of her life was, was a male, Will Thomas. And was a, a good but not great swimmer. Um, in 2018, for example, he was competing on the men's team. He ranked 554th among men in the 20 meter in the 200 meter freestyle, 65th in the high 500 meter freestyle, 32nd in the 1650 meter freestyle. So, I mean, good, you know, good, but not not a world class swimmer at all. Um, Will Thomas subsequently transitioned to Leah Thomas and has now become dominant in, in female swimming. Um, went from 554th in the 200-meter freestyle competing against men, now 5 in the 200-meter freestyle competing against women. Um, went from 65th in the 500-meter freestyle to 1st in the 500-meter freestyle, and went from uh, 32nd in the 650-meter freestyle to 8th in the 650-meter freestyle. So going through the, the transition from male to female and competing against female athletes she is dominant where you know before she was and, and look she was she was a collegiate swimmer you know i mean i'm not downplaying it if you're 32nd in the world or whatever in the united states that that's a great thing but it it's again it was not exceptional or at least wasn't in like the the top 10 but now you know when you start to compete against females that the whole dynamic changes I, and I was watching an interview with with Leah Thomas, and you know it, it's she she's big. I mean she she's six one, probably weighs over two hundred pounds. That's a little bit unclear, but you just look at her, and because she was biologically born as a male, she is physically dominating. She just dominates. You know, as as far as size and you know size of hands, and just dominates over the, the women who were born as women. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I don't care at, at all about the, the transgender stuff. If And I, I appreciate that there are people who, you know, are, are born one gender, I but, you know, really are it the, the male that's born as a female or vice versa. And, and I have no problem with people who want to transition and things like that. But th- this idea that boys and girls are the same. And this idea that you can take somebody who is born as a male and then they go through the transition, but they've still got the same male organs and things like that and have them compete against females. To me, this is the destruction of, of 
women's sports. The story in the New York Times I was looking at is, is Martina Navratilova, who is arguably maybe the greatest female tennis player of all time. And a lot of people, because, I mean, Martina Navratilova is very out going about her her sexuality and stuff and, you know but she's like hey look here, here's the deal she says, I played against taller women I played against stronger women and I beat them all but if I face the male equivalent of Leah in tennis that's biology I would have had no shot and I would have been livid and Martina Navratilova is saying this this just isn't fair to women who are born biologically as women to have to compete against women who are biologically born as, as men. And yet this is precisely what, for example, the Biden administration is, is supporting. They say, look, transgender girls should be permitted on girls' sports teams. And, you know, they're they're pushing an interpretation of Title IX as that. And effectively, I think what they're doing is tilting this playing field so that there's such an advantage, so that the biological female really has very, very little chance of competing or excelling. I believe this is going to kill women's sports, particularly at the collegiate level. I have, like I say, no problem at all if people want to transition. That's that's something that's between, you know, you and your, your doctors or and if you're a minor, it's between you and your parents and all that. That's fine. But it's different when you then start to have people who are biologically boys start to compete against people who are biologically girls. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And, and this push for the, this transgender equality, I think it is incredibly misplaced. And I, again, maybe the answer is to have a, a special competition where you have like transgender athletes compete against each other. But I just don't fundamentally think it's fair to have somebody who's, you know, essentially a boy with, you know, boy infrastructure, the boy heart, the boy lungs, etc., male, have them compete against females. And I understand you can kind of adjust the testosterone uh, levels and things like that, but it's much more complicated than that. 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And don't tell me, oh, you hate transgender people. That's not the case at all. It's just I don't think this is fundamentally fair when it comes to competitive sports. What do you think? We discuss in a moment. See, see to me, all you do is you, you have to look at the statistics. And let, let's just take this, this Leah Thomas formerly Will Thomas case. When Will Thomas was swimming for Penn and competing as a man against other men, he was an average to above average swimmer, all right, and taking nothing away from that, but he wasn't a world-class swimmer. He transitions and becomes a, a she. She then, with the same, you know, the body structure, lower testosterone levels, but that's the only difference, but the bigger heart, the bigger lungs, the, the physical, the physique of a male all of a sudden becomes a dominant swimmer when they're competing against females. And, and like Martina Navratilova says, it, it's, you know, it, it it's just, it's fundamentally, there is a difference. Boys and girls are different. You know, if you look at basketball players, you know, men can, and men can, as a general rule, run faster at that elite level, run faster, jump higher than, than females. You know, you got average guys that are playing, you know, college basketball or whatever who can dunk the ball. You know, women 
some dunk, but not often. That's it's just it's a different it's different. Boys and girls are different. And when you take somebody and then suddenly who's been competing as a male and then have them compete against females during this transition, I believe as a general rule they have an unfair advantage. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. And that's why that, that shouldn't be allowed, which isn't to say that people shouldn't be allowed to transition and in an in many respects, look, it, there's lots of stuff in the world that's not competitive. But when you have that situation, you give people an unfair advantage. And aren't we about trying to protect the playing field? And I can only imagine, for example, all the other collegiate swimmers who are biologically female who have been competing their entire life. And all of a sudden, you know, they're now getting pushed aside because they're competing against people who are biologically male. Gianni and Montello, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, a great topic, Jeff. Hey, my sister was a swimmer in high school and, and also in, in college for a while. And um, I, I'm thinking if she were to compete against this person, um, she would be at a, a significant disadvantage. She's kind of a smaller person, but she would be at a significant disadvantage. So where did we come up with this? I'm all for the, the transition. Sure. I, have, I have transgender friends. But my question, I, I, I leave it to you and your listeners, where are the women's rights movement on this? Where are the women libbers on this? I mean, they were very strong in the se- late 60s and the 70s, and I supported them. But where are they now? Well, you know, it's interesting, Johnny, that you mention that because there are a number of female swimmers now who are appalled by this. But the problem is, in, in this politically correct world we live in, that if you come out publicly and you say, we don't think this is fair, well, then you get targeted by the transgender community and you get accused of, you know, hating transgender people and things of the like. What's the phrase that's used? It's it's TERF, T-E-R-F. That's what they're called. It stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminists. Okay, so if you're... If if that's like Martina Navratilova is being called a turf. So it's like if you say, hey, I don't think this is fair that all of a sudden I'm in a position where I'm competing against somebody who's bi- who's biologically a male, then then, then you're called a turf and, and you're denounced and, be, you know, you're promoting hatred and things like that. So to answer your question, I think. You know, that's that that's where it is. There's just an incredible amount of public pressure that that's there because, you know, it to to say, well, gee, I, I don't think that she who was previously a he should be competing against people who are biologically female because you have an advantage over them. Um, you're, you're suddenly you're you know, you're promoting hate and things like that, where I think it's actually the farthest thing from the truth. It's all about trying to level the playing field and protect the playing field in those competitions. And by the way, there's all sorts of things that, you know, the 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 transgender woman, you know, can do, which, you know, is, is going to be just fine. But this is competing against people who are biologically different. But we're not able to say, well, boys and girls are different. Well, I'm sorry, boys and girls are different when it comes to some things. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. So what would it take to get you into an electric vehicle? Now, for for the longest time, one of the arguments I've made is that it makes 
very little economic sense to get into an electric vehicle because gas prices are, are, are so reasonable. Well, that that's now changed with everything going on and gas prices that, to me, are artificially high because of a lot of different factors. But, you know, when it's, when it's going to cost you $100 to fill up your tank, maybe you start thinking more about electric vehicles. Now, here's the deal. I'm looking at this story. Uh, last year, the U.S. sales of electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids, so it, it's combining the, the all-electric car and the plug-in hybrids, doubled to more than 600,000 last year. Um, and these type of cars have reached the sales, and again, it, it's EVs and it's it's plug-in hybrids, so all lumped together. We'll just, I'm going to call them electric vehicles, but I, I'm talking about both. Um they say now it's about 6.6% of total cars sold in recent weeks, whatever exactly that means in the story I'm looking at. That's not for the for the year, um, as gasoline prices rise. So as, as it gets more expensive, people consider start to consider the, these other alternatives, even though it's a general rule, the electric vehicles are going to be a lot more expensive. And yet... Still, I mean, when you think about all the cars that are sold in the United States in a given year, 600,000 last year, that, that's, that's not an insignificant number, but overall, it, it's just, it's a very, very small percentage. So, I, I, I've been thinking about this because I have said on this program before, I, I have no interest in, at this point in time, in an electric vehicle. If, if you do, that's fine. Matter of fact, I, I know a couple people who have electric vehicles and and they swear by them and and that's fine to me if that's your choice that that's great for me this is not something that i have any interest in at this point in time partly because i believe that gas prices are, are really artificially high and that they're they're going to be going down in the the future once you get control of what's going on in the ukraine and once whether it's Joe Biden being forced to do it or when Joe Biden is ushered out of office, once we start increasing our domestic oil production again, I, I think because there, there's lots of fossil fuel in the world, ultimately the, the prices are going to go down. And I think at some point in time you're going to see gasoline below $3 a gallon, which is where I, I believe it, it probably should be. Not there right now, but I think it's going to go down. So I, I'm because of that. And because of a number of other concerns that I have about electric vehicles, including, number one, the buy-in cost of them, but just the, the practicality of them, because I personally have concerns that the battery technology is is where it needs to be to make these vehicles practical. Um, that is, you know, how, how far are you going to be able to drive on a particular charge? You know, how long is the battery going to hold up if you're driving it in Wisconsin in, in January where you're running the heater or you're driving it in uh, in July where, you know, you're pounding the air conditioning? And what's that going to do with mileage? And then there's the whole question of, you know, charging your, your battery of the, of the car right now. And that's the story I'm looking at. We the, the U.S. just lacks the infrastructure right now for the, the charging stations. Right now, the U.S. has around 93,000 public chargers, most of which take hours to repower a car. Well, if, if you're, if you're driving, and let's say you want to drive from Milwaukee to, to Minneapolis, and you know, you, you can't get there, the battery's not sufficient to get you there on a charge, who, who, even if you find 
a charging station along the way. Who's who's going to sit there for you know an hour or two hours, assuming that you can find one while you're waiting for the car to recharge so you continue on your road? It's just to me not practical. As opposed to pulling off the freeway, finding the gas station, going in, getting yourself a cup of coffee, going to the bathroom, filling your tank, and being back on the road in in five minutes. Um, Fast chargers, which repower a battery in about 30 minutes, are in especially short supply again across the U.S. So, I mean, those are some of the factors that that I have. I just, I I want it to be convenient. I I don't want to have to worry about, gee, where am I going to go to recharge the car? What's I want it to be easy if I'm driving. If I'm driving between here and Indianapolis, I, I want to just be able, oh, I need some gas. I'm going to pull over. I'm going to fill the tank up with gas. To me, it is the convenience of this, and I don't want to be trapped on, on a battery charger that, even if I can find one, is going to take a long time to recharge. But that's, that's just my concern. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Obviously, as gas prices go up, the appeal or the desirability of electric vehicles um, it goes up as well because you start thinking, okay, well, be nice to not have to pay, you know, $4.50 a gallon, et cetera, et cetera. So what's it going to take for you to seriously consider purchasing an electric vehicle? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. For me, I don't know. For me, it starts with the battery technology. It just... It has to be a lot more readily available. The charges have to be longer. Um, the recharging has to, and that mean I think the battery life has to be a lot greater. It has to be, I think, comparable with a tank of gas. I think for me, this is just for me, the recharging has to be really, really quick. I don't want to sit around for an hour or two waiting for the car to recharge so I can get back on the road. Uh, to me, we're, we're not even close to being there yet. And I also raised the other question about what we talk about, well, we're going to all these charging stations and stuff. Explain to me, I'm just reading a story about all the, the rolling back blackouts that we're looking at across this country because the electric grid can't sustain it. Okay, how if we suddenly add millions of vehicles that are being charged, how how is the electric grid going to support it? So I have all sorts of concerns. I don't think I'm going to be ready to buy an electric vehicle maybe ever. But what would it take to get you in one? 855-616-1620. We discuss. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. A big story in the Wall Street Journal today, charging station progress is slow going. And it's talking about how the the infrastructure for charging you know vehicles when you're out electric vehicles when you're out on the road just isn't there and and it, we're, we're years and years behind that now i know that there's some people who who are huge advocates of like the electric vehicles i i'm not but i, I don't if you want to spend your money and buy it that's fine for me the battery technology just isn't there the, the ability to recharge the cars, for me, I, I don't want to wait two hours for it to be charged. I don't even want to wait a half hour. And, I mean, I, I want I, I want to be able to go several hundred miles on, on a charge. If, if I'm driving between, like I say, here and Minneapolis, I don't want to have to stop and wait four or five hours for the vehicle to recharge. I don't want to stop and wait an hour for the vehicle to recharge. And until we get those things taken care of, I don't see myself even – considering an electric vehicle but but that's just me um 855-616-1620 jeff i think if the price tag wasn't so high on electric vehicles 
I might consider buying one. Um, Steve says, Jeff, um, one of the things that I need is I want to have um, 350 miles and the charge that can be done um, 15 minutes. I'd like at least 350 miles minimum on a charge and less than 15 minutes maximum charge time for an SUV-sized vehicle. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Ed in Wauwatosa. Ed, good afternoon. Hi, how you doing? Good. What do you think? So, so we were early adopters. My wife got a hybrid. It's one of the early, relatively short range, but for driving around town, it's great. And the times we need gasoline, she used the, the gas engine, you can stop and pull up the freeway and tap fill up in the same amount of time as any other car you have. She buys gasoline twice a year, once around Labor Day, once about this time of the year. The rest of the year, she's local driving back and forth all on the electricity. You never go to a gas station. You're not waiting in line. Mm-hmm. You go in the garage. You plug it in. It takes two seconds. Now, and you said you we, said local. Well. You said local. Do, do you, does she take it? Do you take that vehicle on, like, if you were going to drive from, for example, Milwaukee to Minneapolis, would you take the car on that, something yeah. like that? We could. We could because, again, you stop, you just put gas in because it's a hybrid. It has right. both a gas and an electric engine. So we certainly could. In fact, my car is, is purely gas. Uh, and I'm, I'm wait, like everybody else, I'm waiting for when I, I want a small car that gives me 300 miles of range. To me, that's my magic number. Right. And it has to be affordable. It has to be in the $40,000 range. And by the way, you talked about price. Look at the price of gas-powered vehicles. New ones today, yeah. you're still looking at almost 40000 for most of them anyway. But the fact there's minimal maintenance, there's no uh, uh, oil filters mm-hmm. or any of that other stuff to horse around with. Uh, oh my gosh, it, it's, it's worked out wonderfully well. Um, what, how, I, did she have a small, I assume it's a small car, right? She has a small car? It is. It's a, it's a, it was one of the early ones, a Ford C-Max Energy. Yeah. And it's only got about 24 miles of, ga- of electricity range on it. But again, for going to work and back, going to the mall and back, it works just fine. Yeah, no, thanks for calling. And I'm sure, and again, I, I think there's, I mean, 24 miles of, of electricity. Um, I guess, and yes, and I understand then, then the engine kicks in. And, and that's, and that may very well be an option, I think, for, I mean, a lot of us who are driving the, the SUVs and things like that. I mean, I have an SUV. My wife has an SUV that, that, that at least a good number of people who are driving this country have F- SUVs. And I, I don't necessarily want to give that up. But again, I'm, if it works for you, I'm cool with that. And that's the, the point of this conversation. You know, uh, if, and if all primarily you're going to do is use the car to, you know, spin around in a relatively narrow geographic area and you don't mind having the really small car, I, I understand where it makes sense. I'm not trying to talk people out of it. I guess I still think that we've got a long way to go before this is the wave of the future. Let's talk to, uh, let's see, Ron. Ron, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? Good. What do you think? I would like to know what the cost is of charging when you stop at those stations, what the cost of a new set of batteries is, what the environmental charge is to get rid of those batteries, and what the price of lithium is going to be when everybody's using it. Yeah, that uh, you you raise it. Then I guess I, I would add that when I was talking about my battery concerns, that's that that is one of the big factors is what happens especially with the electric vehicles what's going to happen if you need to replace the batteries how much is that going to be and like you say you've also got the issues of where where are we going to get the lithium moving forward and how are we going to dispose of it those are all very good questions 
Do you think electric vehicles are going to be anything more than, right now, I think it would be fair to say it's a niche market. Do you think it's going to be anything more than a niche market in, say, the last, over the next five or ten years? I don't think so. I think it's just going to be a small part of it. Yeah. Yeah, and no, thanks. I, I mean, I, I agree. And again, I'm, I'm, I know that there's early adopters and things like that. And like I say, I have a, a couple people who have, have Teslas, as a matter of fact, but they, they use them, they, 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 they use them to drive around town. I mean, that, that's, and they have other cars. The, the people I'm thinking of have the financial where it's kind of like a play toy. And, and in, in, in many respects, it's like, okay, this is, it's not certainly not the daily driver. It's not the car that you're that you're using to you know go around. It's not the car that you're using to take three people to the golf course with and stuff like that. It's kind of a little fun thing to if you're hey I'm I'm going downtown for dinner or whatever. It's it's a fun thing to to drive around in if you're driving around in a really narrow area. And the people I know they all have they they've sprung for the few thousand dollars to put the charging station in. In, in their garages and things like that. So it's a convenient thing to do. But but even at that, like I say, it's it's a fun car. It's a fun thing to spin around with. It's more of a novelty. And I guess I see this as being kind of the niche. 855-616-1620. Let's talk to uh, Doug in McGuanago. Doug, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Uh, I think that your first caller has it right. Plug-in hybrids are the solution because... From an engineering standpoint, I don't know how you can get a battery that'll take you 300 miles, how you can push that much energy into that battery in less than half an hour and not have the battery burn up. I mean, if you charge any battery, you feel it, it gets hot. Yeah. And that's just a little rechargeable, you know, 9 volt or whatever you're, you're charging, a little double A. So think of something that's got that much power in it. You just can't push that much energy into it without it catching fire. But I think that a plug-in hybrid, that's that's where I might be at. So if yeah. I have a pickup truck that'll carry me 50 miles that on what I can plug in at home, then if I get to work, I can plug in and get home. That's most people's trips anyhow. They're not going farther than 50 miles. So that would probably electrify 50% or more of our mileage if you could just plug in for that little bit. Now you want to go on a vacation? You've got the gas engine. Yeah. So yeah. No. No. I think you're. I mean, thanks. I think you're. You're definitely on to something. It, it, interestingly, though, we've been moving, and I don't know why they, they've been moving away from the hybrid technology. And I think it's it's partly because there's the fossil fuels bad. We're, we're trying to. You know, we, we have the war on, on fossil fuels and things like that. So we want to go the all electric. I think, you know, just as I try to think about. For my own needs, yeah, I mean, a hybrid would make more sense, assuming you could get a car the size I want to drive, that that would do that. So at least for the, the, the short trips, hey, I'm just I'm running up the street to the store or whatever, you know, you could kick in on the battery. But then, you know, when you're really going to be doing more of the practical driving, you, you get the gasoline power that's there. So you get the best of both worlds. But it is interesting. There's more of a push for electric vehicles and I think, for the hybrids. Here's a text. Jeff, I am not interested in an electric car, car at all, but gas just went up thirty cents a gallon from when I filled in the when I filled up in the forty five minutes I was in the store. Thirty cents a, a gallon. 
Um, now, again, I said earlier, and I hope I'm right, and you should hope I'm right, too. I think that I think that gas is artificially high right now. I think that it, gasoline is going to come down. I can't tell you when it's going to come down. But a, a lot of the stuff, at some point in time, right now, the, the world is still awash in fossil fuels. And at some point in time, I think you're going to see a return to normalcy and the free, the market's going to kind of take over again. I think there's a lot of reasons why gas prices are artificially high right now, but uh, I, I can't tell you when that's going to happen. I guess I look at it and say, gee, do I feel this obligation to run out right now and buy an EV? And the question is, the answer is, is no. Maybe at some point in time, somebody said, well, you know, when when do you think that that tipping point will be with fossil fuels when they're so expensive they're going to force everybody into electric vehicles? And I honestly, I, I don't think that's going to be in my lifetime, but could be wrong. You, know, you don't hear as much about hybrids as you used to. Um, generally speaking, I think it's it's because hybrids have more machinery than conventional cars, which adds extra weight. Fuel efficiency is less, so hybrid car manufacturers have had to make smaller engines and batteries to cut on, to cut down a weight. And there's, you know, reduced power in the vehicle and support in the body and suspension. So I mean, there, there's there's trade-offs to everything. And again, I I think for one of our callers, for example, who said it's his wife's car, and you know she's in a 20-mile radius, and you're running to the to the grocery store and you're running to a couple other places, you know, maybe it ends up making sense. I'm still not sure that we're anywhere close to either the hybrids or certainly the electric vehicles being practical for anything more than a a niche market, at least for the foreseeable future. But time will tell. So, Jane, I have this, I have another example of how I desperately need to get a life. Oh, I can't wait. No, no. Okay. So, so it's just, it's the things that I think are, are just, just, Kind of neat. All right. Do, do you, you when you get your mail, you go home after work and you go to the mailbox and you check and you see what's there, right? Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this postal services informed delivery thing? No. Oh, it's the coolest thing in the world. This is this is my example of you need a life. The the postal service you can sign up. It's free. You can sign up online, and what they will do is they will send you an email every morning showing you all the mail you've got coming that day. It's USPS informed delivery. It's the, and this again. This is this is Jeff needs a life. It is the coolest thing in the world. So like this morning, I get an email and I open it up and the email shows me all the letters or the mail that I'm getting later on that day. Are you su- expecting surprise things in the mail? Well, not necessarily, but it's just it's kind of like you 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 you're able to see when when. As a matter of fact, I get very little mail nowadays because most of the bills are electronic and stuff. But still, it's just the I just think it's the coolest thing in the world because you can see oh I'm I'm getting this or I'm getting that or you can see it's it's your birthday you're getting like birthday cards from people and I, again I you're giving me that look I, I said I, that was a lead into this it, it's it's a sign that you desperately need a life but I just think it's the coolest thing in the world I have crochet, crochet hooks I'm going to loan you <laughs> so you can start a hobby okay see <laughs> you I, I, you see that that's fine but my guess is there's all sorts of other people out there who say this is it's really cool and and every once in a while it, it is kind of handy because if you're like expecting something, you you know you know you know when it when it's going to be delivered. I would have loved it back in the day when people actually sent letters. Yeah, like if you were in a relationship with someone a couple states away, right? That would have been wonderful. But right. that was the best part of getting a letter like that was the anticipation and just of going that out, and opening up that mailbox, and, and it was there. It was there. Well, see, I th- again, this is okay. 
Um, you know, um, there it is. Okay, see, now here's one of our texters. See, I'm not alone in this. I didn't say you were alone. Yeah, but you you, you said I needed help (laughs) or a life. No, but I understood. That was the lead-in for this. Jeff, this is awesome. Um, My teenage son tried to hide something from us, except we had already seen what was coming. It was awesome. He lost his whole story, so we just let him go, and then we nabbed him. (laughs) Enough rope to hang yourself. Well, that's, you know, that's, um, that's... That's it, you know. So that's it's and it and it's and it's free. That that's the best thing about it. It's it's free, no charge at all. And you know, in this day and age, wherever you can find joy, it's it, I, I I applaud. Okay, that. it's it's the little things in life. I know when I go home, I know what's going to be in the mailbox. So <sighs> go figure. But I will take those crochet hooks if you get a chance. Not a problem. I got some yarn too. <laughs> when we come back, if it breaks, should you be able to fix it? I'll explain. We'll discuss. It's the little things. All right. Story in the New York Times over the weekend, and maybe you will be able to relate to this. Uh, we, we all have electronic gadgets and doodads and things like that, and sometimes they, they tend to break. Now, what the manufacturers a lot of times hope we're going to do when they break is that we're just going to simply replace them as opposed to trying to seek to repair them. But every once in a while, you might make the decision, you know, I, I want to try to either fix this or, or have it fixed. So story in the New York Times. Um, the headline is, I tried Apple's self-repair program with my iPhone. Disaster ensued. Now, for the longest time, Apple would not allow people, they would not make the parts available for people to try to replace their, their iPhone. For example, if, if you had an iPhone or you had an iPod and something went wrong with it, you you couldn't, even if you had the ability to do this and wanted to take the thing apart, you, you couldn't get the parts. They would not provide you with the parts. On top of that, a lot of times they wouldn't provide, even if there was an iPhone or iPod repair store, they wouldn't provide them with the parts. They said that, okay, we consider the parts to be proprietary. So, in other words, if something goes wrong, you really don't have any choice. What you have to do is you have to send it back to us, and and we will fix it, and we'll charge you whatever we're going to charge you to, to fix it. So Apple has recently moved away from that a little bit, and now, I mean, it's, it's sort of a funny story because the um, – Guy says, "Okay, well, well, here's what I, I did. I, I had something going wrong with my iPhone, and I wanted to try to to fix it. And so I, I first of all, I had to rent seventy five pounds of repair equipment from Apple. I had to put they put a twelve hundred and ten dollar hold on my credit card when it arrived on the at the door." And then you know, he goes on to say that they gave him these in- instructions, et cetera, et cetera. But it was just, it was impractical. And he pretty soon, as soon as he started to do it, it just, it, it, he ended up killing his iPhone. Whereas if he had just sent it off to Apple for 70 bucks, they would have probably fixed it and sent it back to him. But he wanted to try it himself. This is sort of a common experience. It's a story in the Wall Street Journal today about what they call right-to-repair laws. And there are a handful of states that have laws that say that if, if something, if you as a consumer have a product that, that's busted 
and you want to try to fix your own your own thing or you want to take it to an independent repair shop, you should be able to do that and that you're entitled to be able to do it. Now, a lot of the manufacturers, especially those who make computer chips, what they say is our computer chips are proprietary. And so what we we don't want to just put them out on the market because somebody's going to steal them. So we're not going to make them available. So as a practical matter, if something's gone wrong, and you need a computer chip to replace it, you, you can't get it other than sending the product back to the manufacturer. So let's tee this up. I mean, our number, 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should you have, under the law, a right to repair your own device? Should, or, or if you don't want to try it yourself because you're not that brave or that foolish, whichever, for me, it would be foolish. For others, if you're better than I am at doing those things, it perhaps would be brave. But should you, when you buy something, should you have a right to be able to at least try to fix it or to be able to go to an independent repair shop to have it fixed? Or is it reasonable for the people that sell you this to say, no, we're not going to provide that to you. And if something goes wrong, it's a monopoly. You've got to send it back to us. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should you have the right under the law to be able to try to fix it yourself? Or is it fair for the company to say, hey, if this breaks, we're the only game in town. You've got to send it back to us. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. This is something that maybe you weren't aware of, but my guess is that you might run into it from time to time. Typically, if you're like me, look, I, I, I didn't get the handyman gene, you know, when it was being passed out in the Wagner family. So generally speaking, I, I have learned that when something goes wrong and I try to fix it, number one, I'm, I'm generally not able to fix it. Number two, I typically make it worse. And I can give you countless stories on that. So if if something goes wrong with something I've purchased Almost always, I, I'm I'm finding somebody who knows what they're doing to repair it. Because, or if it's something that hey, I've got a lot of use out of this. Um, at some point in time, everything's obsolete. You know, I'll, I'll move on to something different. But I know for a lot of people out there, you either feel the ability something goes wrong, and and what you want is hey, I I want to I want to be able to fix this. And I think I'm good with electronics, so I don't mind taking that. I don't mind taking the back off of my laptop computer, or I don't mind taking apart my iPod or my cell phone and, and trying to you know replace some of the circuitry that's there or do what needs to be done. And I know there's some of you would like to do that, or alternatively, some of you would say, you know, I want an option other than sending it back to Apple or, or sending it back to wherever and paying whatever they're going to charge to fix it. The problem, though, is in a lot of cases you can't do that because the companies won't make the parts available. So you have no choice but to send them back. And there's a movement around. A number of states are looking at what they call right-to-repair laws, which would say if you sell a product, you also have to make the replacement parts available either to the individual or to, like, repair shops so they could fix it. Jeff, this topic is huge in the agriculture industry. Many farmers have the knowledge and the ability to fix their tractors, but because of those computer and electronic issues that you're talking about, they have to send them out at a much higher cost. This is not cool at all. Um, Jeff, 
Farmers have had this issue with John Deere tractors. Today's tractors have all sorts of computers built into them, and John Deere makes owners take these tractors to a licensed dealer to get it fixed. But a lot of times, these places are far away from the farms. This means time and money lost transporting the tractor to the dealer to find out you just needed an oil change, but you can't do it yourself because you will void the warranty. 855-616-1620. Dave in Milwaukee. Dave, you're on WTMJ. How you doing? How Good. you doing? What do you think? Good listening to your program again. Thank you. Well, I think that um, this is really no different than your printer ink. And I don't know much about you, but I'm sure you own a printer. And at some time in your life, you've thought, here we go again. I need the black. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that uh, these large corporations were able to lo- lobby their uh, politicians that they needed to to uh, make sure that, hey, you got to buy our ink. This is no different than any other thing. This is a business model that is built and made before the product is even released to the market. And until something is done about this, where they put the consumer, um, holding the consumer hostage to their business model, um, you know, it's, that's just the way it is. And, you know, I hate to say it, but this is politics that is allowing to have this to happen. Um, I remember reading extensive articles about the John Deere situation you were uh, bringing up a couple of years ago and uh, it's really a sad situation that a situ- that this has been allowed to develop but the printer ink thing is should not be far off somebody's radar for the subject that you are talking about as well yeah dave thanks for the call i mean well at least with printer ink you have you have different options, and, and yes, I, I have a printer, and yes, I run through, I have a LaserJet printer, and and it's a Hewlett-Packard one, but at least I, I think there would be, I think there might be alternatives, although I just, candidly, I just order it from, from Hewlett-Packard because it's easy. I mean, here, here's one of the, like cell phones is the big thing. I'm looking at some of the numbers here. Get this, 61% of, the, they did these surveys, 61 percent of smartphone users said they had phone damage needing repair in the prior 12 months it sounds high to me among those with damaged phones the percentages get this 59 percent said they got a new phone rather than repairing the old phone which let's be honest that's what you know that's what the company wants hey your phone is busted don't just just buy a new one just buy a new one. Um, 63% said they avoided fixing it because of high costs. The number one problem was damaged screens. Uh, second problem was battery failure. That's the number two. And 12%, the number three problem was that they had water damage. <laughs> they dropped the phone, put the phone through the washer or whatever. And I'm not sure how it comes back from that. But but there's a lot of people who would like the option of, I don't know, okay, Apple's going to charge me $69 to do this. Well, you know, maybe, you know, Jeff's Repair Shop is going to be able to do it for, you know, like 30 bucks. But Jeff's Repair Shop needs to be able to get the parts from the manufacturer. Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. I think these limitations put customers really at the mercy of these companies and and when they call and try to get like customer service um it's it's almost like these companies have this too big to fail attitude and we can do whatever we want we can jack our rates up and the customer is just gonna have to take it and if these parts become more available i i'm hoping that the customer service would approve 
improve, excuse me, and, and the customers would have more of a choice of whether or not they, you know, would want to deal with this or try to find another more alternatives. Yeah, no, thanks for calling. I mean, I guess that, I mean, that you're right. I mean, that's the alternative. That's the free market response is that, okay, if, if people really, if there's enough demand to want to fix your own products, and again, this is, see, part of it, it's an intellectual conversation for me because this is beyond my capabilities. I mean, if, if my smartphone goes, you know, goes awry, um, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna restart it. I'm gonna reboot it. If that doesn't solve the problem, I, I'm not getting out the manual and trying to order parts from Apple to try to fix it. I'm, I'm taking it into the Apple store and saying, can you have somebody who knows what they're doing look at it? But I do think that there is a certain element that people who, who want to, once you've purchased the product, I think that there should be at least some right that you can buy replacement parts yourself for for that product i mean the idea that you can buy the phone but you know we're not going to sell you the parts that you know are in the phone there is something that that kind of bothers me about that even though like i say i i just i found that we all have our limitations and there's some things that i'm extremely good at and there's other things like trying to fix a computer or a smartphone or electricity or plumbing or many of those other things now that's that's where you just call the professionals